We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson, and got a fun show for you today. We're going to be focusing uh, solely on the Boston Red Sox until the end of the show, and then we'll pick some late outfielders that we think are good value. But uh, joining me today, we've got uh, Jake Devereaux, who's been on the show before, and then a, a first-time guest, Bob Osgood. Uh, they both... Uh, do some podcasting about the Red Sox, uh, Over the Monster, um, and Dynasty Guru uh, for Devereaux at Over the Monster, Osgood's at Dynasty Guru. I'll give those guys a chance to kind of plug their work a little bit more at the end. But uh, first, um, Bob, Jake, good to have you on the show. How are you guys doing? Doing well, James. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, Absolutely. excited to be on, James. Appreciate the invite and uh, ready to get after it. Yeah, so, I mean, we got a lot to talk about with the, the Red Sox, obviously. Um, but, Bob, just kind of as we sit here late November, uh, what's your mindset as a Red Sox fan right now heading into 2024? Ooh, um, yeah, I think first and foremost, it's a team that needs to kind of act like the big market franchise that they are. You know, I know a lot of people would probably – trade places as fans with Red Sox fans in the 21st century, having four championships, but at the same time, they've finished in last place six of the last 12 years now, um, which is kind of just a crazy disparity to think about there. And three of the last four years, they've finished in last, um, you know, in those four years since Dave Dombrowski left, they've been relatively tentative, I think with free agency and with trading, um, you know, I'm a partial season ticket holder at Fenway and it's like they raised ticket prices last year and they have again this year to the, the most in all of the MLB, but they don't really have the product to show for it. So doing that two years in a row, I don't think fans want to hear about the, the CBT any longer. Um, you know, kind of just want to see some aggressiveness. The teams like you saw what happened with Texas, their quick turnaround for a World Series. I mean, these are things that can be turned around relatively quickly. And Boston has done that before. They have a, you know, managers won a World Series here. And there's a core of players that we'll talk about today and some prospects that have debuted and others that are close to debuting that should be impact guys in the next year. So, you know, just want to see kind of more of an aggressive offseason. And, um, you know, they have a new general manager, chief baseball operations with Craig Breslow coming in. And, uh, you know, I think it's a fan base that's getting a little bit antsy to see some success here. Jake, obviously there was 
uh, a lot um, that Heim Bloom was responsible for. Uh, just so many different kind of smaller moves. Obviously, some some bigger moves where it's not clear whether he or ownership was necessarily at fault. Um, but when you kind of reflect back on Bloom's tenure, what are kind of some of the key takeaways for you? I think it's just the frustration um, that Red Sox fans felt with the amount of indecision that it seemed like Heim Bloom had um, in regards to this roster pretty much year in and year out. He never seemed to uh, really commit to a direction with the team. Um, as Bob kind of referenced, he didn't necessarily act like a big market guy. And I think it's fair to question whether or not that um, you know, came from top down um, from from ownership. But, uh, you know, it was the crushing indecision towards the end of his tenure that really um, is the thing that I'll remember the most, aside from like the Bloom proxy wars on Twitter, uh, which I'm sure you saw uh, <laughs> of people defending Bloom and then those who uh, were, were critical of Bloom. Um, it really split the fan base as well. Um, but I think what we saw was just a guy who was afraid to stretch himself to commit um, to players. And, you know, it's, there's that old adage, if you're going to be rational on players, you're going to finish third place on every guy. Um, and so he just didn't show the commitment to be able to bring those guys in and build a successful baseball team. So while we are happy for the steps forward that the farm team took um, in the development here, the major league team product suffered and never really uh, took that step forward. Yeah, it, it, it did kind of seem like maybe he <clears throat> got promoted one too many spots up um, and just didn't really kind of have that, that mindset to kind of close really important deals. Um, Bob, was there anything, is there anything like, you know, you kind of mentioned the the mindset of fans wanting them to kind of get serious and, and really kind of make some big moves. Um, is there anything you wanted to kind of add in terms of the direction of the franchise right now? Is, is there anything we can even kind of read into in terms of what direction they're going to head? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned Craig Breslow coming in and they also just brought in a new pitching coach and Andrew Bailey, who was pretty coveted as, um, you know, for some sort of role moving this off season. And I, I just think that there's going to be a shift to a pitching mindset that they, you know, really need to do. And Breslow was great um, developing pitchers in Chicago. So you have to hope that he brings something like that here, but they also, there's a more immediate need and it's a team that, you know, we'll talk about some of the pitchers, but they didn't have any reliable starters at the top of the rotation the last couple of years. Um, and they need to do that. They need to bring in two pitchers, you know, a surefire ace who can throw 180 to 200 innings, something in that range. You know, Aaron Nola is off the market now, but that's the kind of name that they be, need to be looking at, have more stability at the top of the rotation. And they probably need to bring in a second one as well. Um, I think, you know, on the hitting side, they need to figure out second base. There's been a revolving door there and just no durability or reliability at that position either. And, uh, you know, having a right-handed hitting power bat, they're very left-hand heavy between, you know, Duran and Verdugo, Yoshida, Cassis, Devers, 
all good bats. I could see them possibly making a trade um, to try to balance that out a little bit, but they need, you know, Justin Turner was that right-handed bat name that they had a year ago. If he's not back, they need to replace that um, to kind of split up um, a lot of those left-handed hitters there. So Bob, you mentioned uh, Duran and uh, I kind of just want to get right into the specific player questions with him because um, you know, he's, He's a 27-year-old uh, heading into his age 27 season. Um, as Jake Jake knows that I, I, you know, I was probably pretty low on Duran the last time I talked to him about the Red Sox, but you know he was much better last year um, as a hitter and just a guy that that was kind of doing a little bit of everything that I was expecting him to be. Um, obviously, if you kind of look at the the stats he put up. In 102 games, eight homers, 24 steals. Um, you know, if you kind of prorate that out over a full season, it's it's a pretty exciting package. Um, but do you think we can just look at Jaron Duran now as sort of this is an everyday player until further notice? Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, we've had just we've had the same hesitancies in our podcast and ups and downs with Duran, and it kind of all came together for a few months there last year. You know, it's just 332 at bats, but you mentioned those counting stats and he had a 295 average, 828 OPS, 120 WRC plus. I mean, he was a very good hitter and his speed kind of changed the lineup. And, you know, when you listen to Alex Cora talk, he's he's done a couple of offseason interviews and he lists out Duran as kind of one of the core hitters that they have going into next year. He always makes a point of mentioning him as part of that group. So I think that when Duran went out in August, they really lost that top of the lineup speed dynamic that he had. And they were terrible offensively down the stretch. I mean, they had like four or five wins or something in September. It was ridiculous. So, you know, in those four months, if you just isolate that across all of baseball, he was ninth in the league in stolen bases. He was 24 for 26, which is very efficient. Uh, he was second in all of baseball in that time in doubles. He, only Freddie Freeman was ahead of him. So it's not just steals, you know, from a real-life perspective. Uh, he was m- making his presence felt um, with his speed, and his defense wasn't bad. You know, that had been hit or miss, but he kind of held his own there defensively, and you know, like I said, he he hit leadoff maybe half the time. Um, I think sometimes against lefties, he'll hit further down the lineup, but most of the time he'll be up there. And, you know, they'll pinch hit for him now and then. But he hit 289 against lefties last year. So against the 296 against righties, obviously much different sample size. But I think he showed that, you know, even if he's a 80% of the time player, um, you know, looking at his early ADP of 200, I think that that can be a steal. I mean, I don't see, even if he plays three quarters of the time, why he's not going to get 25 to 30 steals this upcoming season. Yeah, I I totally agree. I look at the players that are kind of going around him, uh, outfielders specifically, and, you know, like I like a lot of these guys, but um, if they all play full seasons, I think Duran outperforms a lot of these guys, you know, like Lars Newtbar, um, Dalton sure. Marshall, like Stephen Kwan, like you know, Taylor Ward, like there's just he's just got such a higher ceiling than these guys, and it doesn't really seem like that that downside is there anymore. I, I think the new rules help him out a little bit too, you know, with the yeah. with his speed. I think that that's 
an area that, you know, when he was on, he was usually going pretty quickly. Okay, Jake, uh, this is one that's um, I'm really excited to, to hear your, your take on these guys because Willier Abreu and Sadon Rafaela obviously made their big league debuts last season. Um, different players, but I just I want to get your take on sort of what we can expect from Abreu and Rafaela for just their roles for 2024. Um, how realistic is it that we go into spring training with one or both of these guys having a legitimate chance to make the roster? Uh, just what are kind of your thoughts on Abreu and Rafaela specifically for 2024? Yeah, these are two really interesting players and um, guys who we saw down the stretch last year at the big league level. So we have a little bit more of a data on how they will perform at the major league level. And uh, they both adapted in very different ways. William Abreu came up and he was just really impressive. He had uh, a slash line of 316, 388, 474, um, 135 WRC plus. Played solid defense uh, when he was out there as well. Um, you know, the, the thing with him is he's always been very selective. He's always been a high OBP guy and we saw him continue that uh, at the big league level, he looked patient up there as well. Uh, he can play both the corners. So I really liked his game. Uh, when it comes to Rafaela, though, he is a little bit of a different story. He's a little bit trickier. Um, Rafaela struggled um, substantially. He, you know, was barely over. Uh, you know, he was he was well under average in, in terms of his WRC plus and, you know, his ability to impact the ball. But the defense was just absolutely stellar uh, from him. And even in small sample sizes, you could see how he could, you know, play up in the major leagues. And if he had a 90 WRC plus, he'd be a Jackie Bradley Jr. type of uh, defender in center field. But I think when we're looking at these guys for next year, it's hard to envision a Red Sox team who wants to compete next year, um, allowing Sedan Rafaela to play substantial time at the major league level. I think there's still just a lot that needs to be figured out with him. Um, he performed really, really well at AAA. He hit very well at AAA, uh, but he wasn't able to translate that to the, um, to the majors. And I think that he will definitely be starting in AAA next year. Abreu is an interesting guy. I don't think he really has anything to learn from AAA. Um, ideally, the role that I would like to see Abreu in is as a bench bat, um, a guy who's able to fill in late in games, especially for players like Masataka Yoshida, who we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, I don't think he's going to be a full-time player. I don't think he's going to be you know, penciled in as the everyday right fielder even though you've been hearing Verdugo's name bandied about in trade rumors. Um, I, I do think that he will play. I think he'll be effective when he plays, and I think he'll be a good bat off the bench and a good defensive replacement. But neither of these guys are guys you want to commit to from a fantasy standpoint going into next year. Do you think the expectation should be with Abreu that he's um, just – when he does play, it's going to be against righties. Like, do you see them ever going to, do you see them ever just letting him play against righties and lefties for a stretch? Or is, does that kind of cap his ceiling just to kind of the idea that he's probably going to be platooned? Yeah. I would say that 
you know, if if everybody's healthy, he's playing mostly against righties um, because Ref Snyder is still here, um, and he's definitely going to get a lot of lefties. Um, but yeah, I mean, he has the ability, barring injury, to step up into that role. It's just not one that you should count on. And then with Rafaela, uh, yeah, I mean, he's that's kind of I wanted to get your take just because he's. I agree with pretty much everything you said, but he's just also this, um, just such a freak athlete. And, uh, you know, I, I never want to kind of rule out the possibility of someone with his tools, kind of it all clicking, um, at some point. Um, but just with his defensive versatility, like all that athleticism, like if you were, you know, deciding where to use him, like, like, is there, is there an argument for doing anything differently than what they did last year? Is there, is he just like such a good center fielder that that's where you would keep developing him? Like how, how would you take advantage of his defensive versatility? Well, he can certainly play anywhere uh, infield or outfield, like you mentioned. Um, but I think watching him play center field uh, and, and I was able to see him play center field a couple times this year, it's just, it's breathtaking. It's uh, it's like 70, 80 grade defense out there. So um, the the athleticism to me, I think you want to play him up the middle. And I think center field is his best possibility um, to play every day. And I ultimately think that like, even if he doesn't fully develop offensively, he ends up getting a full time gig in center field with with somebody. I don't know if it's necessarily with the Red Sox. It could potentially be. Um, but the, the big knock on him still is just that he chases way too much. He's yeah. sort of uh, fake selective. You know, like he, he goes up there and will just leave the bat on his shoulder sometimes and he won't, you know, swing. But it's not like he's not really effectively hunting for his pitch. The, the other thing with Rafaela that you hear a lot is just the, the bat to ball skills with him are insane. Um, he can basically make contact with and sometimes good contact with pitches he has absolutely no business swinging at. So I think that gets him into a little bit more trouble. And with maturity, hopefully that will that instinct to do that will sort of tamp itself down because we've seen that even though he is a smaller guy, he has the ability to impact the baseball. So you're right. I mean, the ceiling, if everything clicks, is very high. I just think that there is still a tremendous amount of work to do on the offensive side. Yeah, I think that's that's something I've kind of tried to dial in just fantasy-wise, those, those hitters where they're going to chase way too much, but then they're also going to make contact with – a lot of pitches that most guys can't make contact with. And, you know, sometimes that ends up being like a, a Michael Harris or, a, you know, Tim Anderson or, or something like that. And, and it all works out. Um, you know, there's been tons of examples like that throughout the years um, where just really talented guys can just make it work with a, with swing decisions that wouldn't work for other guys, um, but still kind of to be determined uh, with Raphael. Um, Bob, what, what, if anything needs to be said about Alex Verdugo at this point, is he on the Red Sox next year? Do you, do you want him on the Red Sox next year? Wow. Um, if I had to guess, I don't think he's on the Red Sox. I think he's just kind of the most obvious trade candidate with the year 
left away from uh, being a free agent. And I mean, if you're asking for expectations, I just direct you to his baseball reference page and say, if you copy and paste, whatever it said, like the last four years down to 2024 and just expect that again, you know, because I mean, the last four full seasons, 12, 13, 11, 13 homers, a whole lot of 280 to 290 and 70 to 80 RBIs and runs. And it's, even when he gets off to a hot start and seems like he's going to be a different player, it all just kind of regresses back when all is said and done. You know, he'll do a couple of dumb things either on the bases or in the locker room, and he'll get benched by Alex Cora twice. And it's just, like, kind of been the same story. And I wonder if, um, you know, a fresh start somewhere for a year might help him out. If he, But, you know, if he is in Boston, I just would expect kind of a similar season uh, for – four of the categories. I did think it was interesting. You know, I mentioned Cora had talked a couple of times and one of those was he wanted to see Verdugo be more aggressive on the base paths. I mean, he said in an interview that he wants to see him become a 15 to 20 stolen base guy. Now I don't think he'll get there because he's been four to six pretty much his whole career, but he kind of talks about how he's, you know, once he gets caught stealing, he's a little bit hesitant on the bases. Um, and he just wants him to be more aggressive, especially with the new rules. So I, I feel like he could get to double digits in stolen bases. You know, he, if he could just kind of pick his spots and be a little bit of a better base runner, you know, he, he brings decent defense, but you know, I, I mean, I'm one of the sickos who's drafting in November and December. So I've been looking at the ADPs a little bit and he's going on those draft boards as the fifth or sixth outfielder for a lot of teams. And I would take him there. He's not going to kill your average. He's he's going to probably hit 270 to 280 and give you double digits, homers, and hopefully steals. You know, I, I think he's going at a pretty good value. He's the same player as he was a year ago, and at that time he was more like a, a 200 ADP. So I, I feel like there's kind of some buying value there in fantasy. Yeah, as, as boring as that sounds, I, I think he probably is a bit too cheap at this point. Um Jake, Masataka Yoshida, uh, currently the 40th outfielder off the board in NFBC 15-team leagues. Um, you know, kind of going right around Teoscar Hernandez, Riley Green, James Outman, uh, Lars Newtbar, Brandon Nimmo, Kerry Carpenter. Uh, is everyone kind of – is the market right on Yoshida? Do you think he should be going higher than that, lower than that? I think it is right, um, but I think there's some opportunity here for you to get a very good player uh, at a very good value. Um, it, I think if he were able to continue what he was able to do in the first half of last year, which was 316, 382, 492 slug with 10 home runs, you know, if he was able to keep that pace, um, he would have been somebody going much higher than that because there's just no real warts in his game. Um, but he was fatigued at the end. And I think that that's one of the things that's so underrated about the transition from playing Japanese baseball to going to, you know, America and the, the crazy travel schedule that they play. And he mentioned that that really got to him. And we started to see just wildly different at bats from him uh in the second half of the season and his second half numbers were just uh very bad um his second half slash line was 254 278 386 with a 73 wrc plus versus a 136 
in the first half of the year. So I, I do think that now that he knows what to expect um, from the grind and he can you know go back and prepare a little bit differently, that he'll be a lot closer to first half Yoshida because it wasn't one of these things where like we saw pitchers attacking him wildly different in the second half of the year. It was just really like his swing choices were different. His bat looked a little bit slower. It was all the telltale things about fatigue that we saw. And I also think that the Red Sox played him a lot in the field. Um, and this year there's an opportunity, especially if you carry someone like William Abreu uh, on your bench for him to be subbed a lot, him to play a lot more DH, um, which I think would be great for him. Um, take that load off of his body a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I think he could definitely outperform that ADP. Um, do I think he has the ceiling of like the best that Tay Oscar can offer? Probably not. But if he could be a 20 home run guy with a great slash line and contributing lots of runs, um, I think that's a really good player. So I'm still very high on him. Okay, let's uh... – Let's talk about Tristan Casas. Uh, the, the moment that uh, both of you have probably been waiting for. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, but we'll start with Bob. Uh, any reason not to draft him uh, with enthusiasm at his ADP of 112 as a borderline top 10 first baseman? <clears throat> No, I, I think that that's totally fair. And I think that in the second half, he showed, you know, who the, the player that he can be. I mean, his OPS was 1034 after the All-Star break, which is absurd. I mean, it was Otani, Olsen, Acuna, and Casas from OPS after the break. So, you know, it was I think it ended up being around 200 at-bats because he missed September most of that month. Um with a shoulder injury. So that would be my hesitation is that, you know, he's a big dude and he's now had three injuries in the last two seasons. Um, he missed close to two months with a high ankle sprain in 2022 in the minors. And then I think, you know, that he had missed enough time that they wanted to get him more at bats. And then he got pulled out of the Dominican winter league um, where he had, you know, knee soreness there, but you know, it's ankle, it was knee and then it was shoulder late this year where they ended his season a little bit early. So that would be my only hesitation. You know, it's, it's a, a few things that have come up. He's a big guy. Um, I don't have many questions when he's on the field about the bat. I mean, he's going to be an OVP monster and 
he cut down his strikeouts from the first to the second half, you know, from 26% to 23 and a half, you know, 417 OBP after the break. So if he could be any close, anything close to the second half player and stay on the field, then I think that would be great value there. Yeah, Jake, what do you, what do you think about all that? Um, I also noticed, uh, you know, he kind of fixed the platoon issues for the most part. It, it, last I looked, at least, I, I thought I'd remember seeing that. Um, anything magic? Yeah, I just I kind of want to just take a mini victory lap here because I think uh, last couple times I was on the show, I was really plugging uh, Tristan Casas, and uh, you had asked me about the platoon splits, and I wasn't worried about him. So I just feel happy that uh, <laughs> that I didn't look like a fool and that he developed well. So, uh, yeah, I, I have no hesitation. I think he's going to be a future superstar. And I, I do think that uh, one of the things I cautioned about last time I was on was that he could be a little bit of a slow burn offensively getting to that power. And we didn't see that at all. So, um, you know, I, I think the the sky is the limit for him next year. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes well over 30 home runs. Yeah, I, I just love the uh, and prop, props to you, Jake, of course. Um, that was a really good call. Uh, I I don't know why his ADP isn't higher, to be honest. I, I thought with it being, you know, he's he's a definitely a name brand prospect of the past. He's a you know, Red Sox. Um, like, I would take him over Spencer Steer uh, easily, and I like Spencer Steer. And then I actually, I actually would take Casas. I think I would take him over – Bellinger, Goldschmidt, and Walker, and I think they're all good too. Um, and that that gets you all the way to like half of his ADP, uh, basically. So I think Casas is a is a major um, steal. Do you guys have any sort of prediction slash projection of like what a peak home run season from him looks like, assuming he stays uh, with his current home ballpark? I think he can hit over forty. Um, yeah one year pretty easily um the power is just insane that's always been the thing with him is like he's been focused so much throughout his career on being a good contact hitter and not overly committing to the power and he's finally learning how to balance that and uh i think we're going to see some pretty crazy seasons from him yeah i i agree with jake and that it, it can be 40 you know it should be at least 35 you see if you watch where his home runs are going out i mean the the balls that go over the monster to left center um and to center field you, you're not seeing many left-handed hitters go there uh so his i mean you know there were a couple of you know distances on home runs that went opposite field from lefties and it was like after otani casas was second in line last year in terms of how far a lot of these were going so you just see um you know how good the power is some of the pitches that that he's hitting out he's just he's a really patient smart hitter who waits and looks for his pitch and i think in the first half he was getting in his own head a little bit um, he got into some ruts with strikeouts and was kind of trying to be too fine with looking for the right pitch. And I know they, you know, wanted him to be more aggressive. You started to see that in June and then it took off in the second half. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, James, about him being too low with around some of those other names. And we were talking a month ago where we thought he would land, you know, like in, in war among first basemen. And we were, we thought he'd be about fifth or sixth. So I think that can happen as early as this upcoming year. 
Yeah, agreed. Uh, Jake, let's talk about uh, the other middle-of-the-order slugger, uh, much more established, Rafael Devers, uh, heading into his age 27 season. Um, do you think – you know, I don't really think there's a ton to say about this upcoming year unless unless you have something to, to mention, but just how do you sort of envision Devers – aging for those that have him in dynasty leagues as he kind of approaches 30 and beyond yeah that's a great question and i had to look at this uh for myself in a long-term dynasty league that i'm in the 2014 league this year and i actually made the decision to trade him um and i i think the reason being is that um i think we've pretty much seen the peak season from uh devers i'm not sure he gets a whole lot better than what he was in 2021 um i think he'll be a pretty consistent 30 35 100 and 100 guy um with a pretty good slash line for a while but the the issue that i have and the thing that worries me about him from a dynasty perspective is just the the simple fact that he isn't a great body physically um you know, he, he struggled at third base quite a bit, pretty much his whole career. Um, and his swing is very violent. And I just think that guys with really violent swings like that, especially if they have some, you know, body issues, um, high maintenance body type, uh, tend to run into more injuries. So a couple of things scare me with Devers, his potential to move off of third base eventually, even though the team is uh committing to him at third base for the foreseeable future and then just the potential for injury and missed time you know he hasn't missed uh, almost any time since he's been in the league but you know these are these are the good years uh right now that you're getting out of him and a post nine uh post uh, 30 year old rafael devers starts to really scare me and i think we might see those injuries crop up with him a little bit earlier so i actually uh traded him and one of the centerpieces coming back to me in that trade was roman anthony so kind of a little bit of a you know you couldn't you couldn't be a you couldn't be a complete non-homer you had to sort of <laughs> exactly that. i wanted to be able to root for somebody at fenway yeah because i you know i do I do worry that, you know, it's not going to be, I don't think it'll be quite as extreme as like Prince Fielder's drop off, but I think it could be, um, you know, I think you, you phrased it well by sort of saying we've probably seen uh, the best Devers has to offer. And so just kind of a question of when the decline starts and, um, you know, I do, I do worry about just guys that have that sort of build um, when it's, you know, especially he's, he's got, his long-term money already. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I assume he's got a, a fine work ethic. You have to be a pretty hard worker to get to the big leagues and stuff, but um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. To just to, to add one more thing, he was third in line for me out of the big three guys that the Red Sox had uh, between Xander and Betts, who I wanted them to commit to long-term. I would have committed to Mookie first, Xander second, and him third, and unfortunately, we ended up with Devers. Still a great player, but uh, obviously, the other two had, I think, had a quite a bit less risk. Yeah, and it's, I'm sure that's just a frustrating feeling as a fan because you, you know, part of the reason 
Devers got that contract too is just that they whiffed on retaining the other two that yeah been the bigger exactly. Um, okay, uh, Bob, what do you think about Trevor's story? Uh, I I kind of think he's washed up. Like I I don't have any Trevor story in fantasy baseball, but um, yeah, you know I'm sure there's a, an argument the other way. At, where, where do you stand? Yeah, I mean I'll try to make that argument. I don't blame you in the least for feeling that way. I mean it's been a bumpy ride, and I guess I'll kind of start with that there are plenty of valid excuses in there for the last two seasons. I mean in, in 2022 he signed really late after the lockout, like end of March late. Um, and then, you know, it was one thing after another, he got food poisoning and then he got hit by a pitch and he, in, in the hand and he missed two months and he was starting to get hot when that happened. And then he had a heel injury to end the season. Right. So he's ramping up for 2023 and he finds out that he needs a mod modified Tommy John surgery, which of course we're all like, well, why didn't we do that in September when they were out of the race? But what's done is done. So he misses 112 games and then he takes, he also takes the full rehab time while Boston's kind of going into the tank in August while they're waiting for him. So, you know, there's definitely frustrations, um, and then when he came back, he he could not hit breaking balls. His average was 070 against breaking balls, and it was 197 the year before. And there was a decent spike in how much of that he saw after he came back last year. So I think that there's kind of a, a book on him in that sense. You know, he's never going to have the batting average as close to what he had in Colorado. But, you know, he did offer a couple of things in those 43 games where he came back. He had 10 stolen bases. And he had a plus eight outs above average at shortstop, which is seems impossible to me in 43 games. But he played great defense, and I'm sure you know, kind of his arm after a year removed from the surgery should, you know, make him an above average shortstop as well. So he's going to play. He's got the speed, and he's got the defense. I think it's somewhere in between. They have to try to make it work. He's got four years left. He signed a six-year, 140 million dollar deal. So. They got to try to make it work for another year or two. I don't think he's going to use his opt out that he has after four years with how it's gone so far. So I don't know. I see like a 230 to 240 hitter that has maybe 15 homers and 20 steals. I mean, the steals were there. It's a matter of getting on base so that he can use that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, um, yeah, we just we have a lot of different things here. It's like, you know, the skills are declining uh, as yeah. a hitter. The, there's the durability questions. Um, you know, I think if we just if we just sort of assume, like, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt uh, health-wise, and let's just say he plays in, like, 135 games. Um, right. You know, is he better for fantasy than, like, Willie Adamas? Uh, who I, I think, like, with Adamas, he's coming off a down year, too, but there's an easy case to be made that it was just kind of bad luck he's still young he should bounce back um you have like an ezekiel tovar who is kind of trending in the opposite direction of story you know he's, he's getting older getting stronger he's gonna play every day um jeremy pena is kind of a just sort of a you know fewer counting stats maybe but safer from a health standpoint do, do you think like story can still hang with these guys on a, on a production standpoint. Um, 
I mean, I think it's a fair range for him to go in. I'm more likely to take Adamas because I think I'm going to get the same batting average, um, and he's going to be on the field, and I'm going to get better counting stats. I think that that was just kind of the down year that he had, but we see what we saw what he could do in Milwaukee after he got out of Tampa Bay there, and he's he was a 31 home run hitter the year before. So I would take Adamas. I think you know I, I feel like I need another year to judge Pena. He was going too high last year. He might be going a little too low. This year, you know, Tovar, just the fact that he's in Colorado and he's going to get at bats and all those names, I feel like, I don't know, maybe Story or Pena is a coin flip, but but I would take the other ones ahead of Story there, and especially because of the injury concern. I have no reason to think that he can hold up for as many games as you said. Yeah, if you're if you're drafting just kind of straight off projections, um you're probably going to end up with a decent amount of Trevor Story. I mean, Steamer has him yeah. going 2022. Uh, I this is probably just like kind of a, a repulsive thing to say for anyone who likes Story, but like I would, I'd probably rather just wait, um, like 175 picks and get Bryce Terang for the for the stolen bases. Honestly, yeah, but, um, yeah. I I don't know. We'll we'll see. Like if he's just Kind of a uh, recharged guy this spring, he could definitely pay this off. And and you know you do kind of have to get down to like Terang to sort of find another shortstop that is a pretty good bet for twenty plus steals. And he really, you know, as I said, he hasn't had a normal spring training to ramp up. So you know, between the late signing, the one year, and then the injury, the second year, you know, if he's healthy and he gets the at bats and he looks somewhat decent, you know, I, I could see maybe some value there later in draft season, but before March, uh, I don't think I'll do that. Jake, who's going to play second base for this team? Well, that's a great question. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. Um, and the four names that I came up with were all trade candidates from other teams. Um, great. So I don't think that guy is is on the team. The four yeah. names that I came up with were all right-handed bats. Uh, Ha-Sung Kim, Brandon Drury, Jonathan India, and Jorge Polanco, I think are kind of the most likely guys um, for the Red Sox to go out and target. They need another right-handed bat. They need somebody who can defend. Um, and, you know, all those guys except for Polanco can defend decently well. Um and they need somebody who can impact the baseball a little bit. And, uh, you know, they're just kind of stuck uh, at that position. They really need to go out and get somebody. The market is not very appealing um, right now. It's kind of like Whit Merrifield is the the uh, headliner there. He's 35. He makes pretty bad uh, quality of contact uh, numbers across the board. Um, definitely in the decline. So I think that they're going to need to get creative. Um, and if it's not one of those four guys, I honestly would just prefer that they do some sort of a platoon with, um, you know, whether it's Pablo Reyes or uh, Enmanuel Valdez, somebody like that, um, rather than, you know, paying $10 million to Whit Merrifield. That's kind of where, where I'm at with the second base position. Okay. Um, good names there. I think, uh, you know, I think, with Polanco, I mean, really all those guys I think could be had. Um, Hassan Kim probably the hardest to, to acquire via trade, I would guess. Um, mm -hmm. India and Polanco I think are guys that their teams would just 
be really excited to move. And then obviously the Angels aren't going anywhere. So what do they what do they care about Brandon Drury? Um, yeah, so that that'd be that'd be kind of a, a boost. Uh, I think that'd be a boost for Jonathan India's value um, because people are probably concerned about the playing time as things stand. Uh, you know, Jorge Polanco, I'd almost want the twins to keep him because that would make me feel better about his health than if they traded him to somewhere else. Um, but, uh, yeah, interesting names there. Uh, let's talk uh, catcher quick before we get to the pitchers. Um, this one's kind of for, for both of you, but uh, there, was a, there was at least a stretch last season where I thought Connor Wong was pretty interesting as sort of a super cheap second catcher. Uh, but is he just kind of a, a backup long-term with Kyle Teal uh, marching towards the majors, or is Connor Wong a guy that is just too good to be a, a strict backup? I can start with that. Um, I, I think long-term that he's probably a backup or at best a platoon. I think he's interesting for this season, and I agree there were some stretches last year where he got hot and he showed some power. And the thing with Wong is that, you know, the pitchers like seem to like throwing to him. His defense has been good. He has an excellent arm or pop time, you know, has been really good, kind of near the top of the league. So I, I think that he's kind of fine to have there um, for this year with the knowledge of who's coming up. And I think with Teal, we saw how quickly he moved last year. You know, we, we'll talk about him next, but I think that he's going to kind of force his way as a part of the team sooner rather than later, especially as a college bat and just how well he progressed last year and how we looked on both sides. So, and, and I just think that's going to be an easy platoon, you know, with the, with Teal and Wong hitting on opposite sides of the plate long-term and just the upside that we're going to see, you know, who knows when he gets to triple a in the majors with Teal, um, how he'll react to those challenges. So maybe Wong is in the mix for, one year or two years, but um, I don't really like that name kind of long-term. Yeah, I see him as like an elite backup. Um, okay. You know, I, I think Teal, I'm still kind of pinching myself that the Red Sox were able to get Teal with the 14th pick because, you know, what we saw in the minor leagues from him was just incredible last year, moved so quickly, uh, cruised through so many different levels with, with ease really justified that that pick uh, that they made and all the scouting reports on his athleticism and you know bat to ball skills everything just looks like a, a future above average starting catcher so yeah i think bob's right we probably have another year year and a half of of long being the the true lead dog until teal gets uh, enough reps to kind of take that spot, but I think it's Teal's job moving forward. Okay, yeah, I mean we'll we'll touch on maybe him. Uh, actually, just quickly, like he, you know, he is uh, he is getting drafted in draft and hold leagues more. So, I think it's more because you know catcher is just so bad in like the final ten to fifteen rounds that you just have people getting desperate and just kind of hoping for a miracle. Um, but like with Teal and then, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about Roman Anthony specifically later, but like, do you see like Teal or Anthony kicking the door down this year? Or is that just kind of presumably off the table based on what you guys know about the new regime? 
I think both could play this year. Uh, I really do. Um, I I think it's more likely that a guy like Anthony tears the cover off the ball and ends up, you know, knocking the door down and playing every day and, you know, becoming an important guy down the stretch. I think with the catcher position, you want to be a little bit more careful because of the routines that the pitchers have and sort of the mental load that a catcher has to take on becoming that primary catcher for the team. Um, but I could absolutely see both guys uh, getting up to the majors and Teal kind of working his way in a little bit slower. But once Anthony is up, I think they're just going to they're gonna be like, okay, here you go, kid. Go uh, go help us win some ball games. Anything you want to say about Anthony's ability to hit uh, lefties long-term? Um, or do you want to just <laughs> – uh, just just because of the Casas, the Casas history. Yeah, that's really the only thing. I was looking at Anthony. Um, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead on the run line, but I just you know, Anthony's fun to talk about. Um, yeah, really, I, the only the only thing I could really find to nitpick was just that he wasn't that good against lefties and could probably stand to lift the ball a bit more. But um, you know, he's awesome. Yeah, I'll just say like again. It's very reminiscent of the Casas stuff, I think. I think he just hasn't seen a ton of quality lefties who are, you know, good strike throwers and stuff like that. And I I think that he absolutely has the ability to do it. I don't see him as a guy who carries any sort of significant platoon splits moving forward. Um, he's shown an ability to learn really, really quickly, which you see with these higher level guys and uh He's keeping good company this offseason. I'm not sure if you saw, but he's working out with uh, uh, Jackson Holiday uh, in the in the offseason. So it's good company to keep. And, uh, yeah, I, I think he's going to be a stud. Yeah, I, I mean, it, to, back to your question about if they can be up this year, I, I, I think that they both can. And I don't know that Teal is any less likely just depending on what the catching situation looks like. And I mean, Reese McGuire is, he hits left-handed, Teal hits left-handed. Again, it's kind of easy fit if he's not bringing a ton to the table. And um, yeah, I don't know, just with how aggressive they were with both players, you know, sending them to the, uh, to the Teal to the complex league for like a week. And then he goes to low A and destroys there and does the same thing at double A. I mean, the WRC plus of like 170 at both levels, He's, you know, walking and just defensively, like, pop times that were close to major league ready already in the lower minors, you know, just kind of having that seasoned kind of college catcher. I, I just think the way that the league is going, if the Red Sox are competing this year, that they'd be foolish to leave either of those guys uh, down there if they think that they're ready or at least take a look. Yeah, this is a great job for Breslow to – take over um yeah, he's in not, a good situation i'm not gonna feel as badly for bloom as i do for like john daniels for getting squeezed out right when the rangers were getting really good but um let's let's jump to the rotation uh so how about we start with uh we'll start with jake and then we'll we'll have bob chime in here too i wanted you guys to rank their five projected big league starters by how many innings you think they'll throw next year. Um, Nick Pavetta, Brian Bayo, Chris Sale, Cutter Crawford, Tanner Houck, 
is how Steamer sees them finishing in terms of inter- innings pitched. But uh, we'll start with you, Jake. How do you see them fin- finishing in terms of innings pitched? I have it pretty different than Steamer. Um, I have Bayo uh, going from 157 to 185. I have Sale taking a jump from 102 and two thirds to 145 innings. Um, I've got Tanner Houck going from 106 to 125 next year. I've got Crawford going from 100 uh, in 29 in a third down to 100 innings pitched. And I have Pavetta last uh, going from 142 and two thirds to 90. And um, the the real reason here is I expect that they're going to add at least two guys to the rotation uh, who are not in the rotation right now as projected. Um, So I think that Pavetta ends up spending almost all of his time in a more uh, multi-inning relief role. I think that Crawford and Houck um, play in that fifth spot of the rotation. And, you know, injuries always happen with pitchers. So I think that those guys will uh, be in the rotation a little bit more than we'd like. And I think that Sale in a walk year um, kind of gets it together a little bit. And, uh, you know, not like he's going to be a horse or anything, but 145 innings from him would be uh, pretty spectacular. All right, Bob, what do you think? Yeah, well, I have it a lot different than Jake, so th- it's good that we, you know, get a different perspective. I, I have Bayo first as well. Um I have, if, if they are all on the team, on the same team this upcoming season, I would have Sale second. I would have Pavetta third, but kind of a close third. You know, Sale, Pavetta, pretty close in innings pitched. Crawford fourth and Hauk fifth. I do think Pavetta is a trade candidate. Um, he was ridiculous in the second half, you know, crazy high strikeout numbers. But there was about a calendar year from halfway through 2022 to like May of this past year that he was one of the worst pitchers in baseball. So it's, it's just such a Jekyll and Hyde. I think that they could maybe get something trading high for what he had in the second half of the season. Um, so I think Bayo and Sale, certainly in the rotation, I'd like to see them bring in two pitchers, as I mentioned earlier, you know, bring in an ace, Bayo, Sale, and another pitcher as your two through four. And then for the fifth spot, I could, if Pavet is here, I could see him battling it out with Cutter Crawford and even Garrett Whitlock, who I still think deserves a chance um, to battle out a spot for the rotation. I see Tanner Houck as a bullpen arm. I've just seen enough at this point that he was so good in relief in 2022 and just kind of moving back and forth between the rotation and the bullpen. I just want to see him in, in one role going forward. And I just think he looks better out of the bullpen, even if that's a two or three inning stint and then he sits for a couple of days. You know, and he looked decent as a closer in that year, too. So I just I, I've seen I'm just at a point where I've seen enough with Hauk and not really developing the third pitch or to get through the third time through the order that I just don't think he's a starter anymore. So I put him last. Um, and then, like I said, you know, whether Pavetta gets traded or he's battling out with Whitlock or Cutter Crawford, I'd rather those guys be your five, six, seven starters than throw as many innings as they have the past couple of years, because, you know, they didn't even have a pitcher that qualified for the ERA title, you know, Bayo threw 157 innings. That was the most anyone on the team. And the year before that, Pavetta was the only pitcher who threw more than 130 innings. So they just, they have to get out of that, 
you know, eight or nine starters, a lot of injury prone pitchers and moving guys back and forth. I just think it's, it's had a lot to do with why they haven't been successful the last two years. I think this is a space where Bob and I could really argue quite a lot. Yeah. This would be a 30 minute segment on our show. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about this? How about this? Um, do either of you want to make like kind of a passionate pro or against like Cutter Crawford can keep developing and keep improving, improving case because he does, you know, like just looking at his whip, looking at his K minus walk, like it's, looks pretty encouraging to me just for a, a young pitcher, especially given uh, his home park. But um, anyone feel strongly about Cutter Crawford? I, I think I can make the Crawford case because I've actually, we've had this discussion on our own podcast about which of these sort of fringy starters for the Red Sox out of Pavetta, um, Crawford, Hauk, Whitlock, which one you would kind of prefer to roll with going as like the fifth starter. Um, in the future. And for me, it is very clearly uh, Cutter Crawford. I think that, you know, he's shown a starter's repertoire. He's shown the ability to stay healthy. Um, like you said, pretty good command. Um, I, I just think he has been a really good development story for the Red Sox. A guy who, you know, wasn't even that impressive. I saw him in double A and I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that this guy's going to be a starter moving forward and then uh, he had an injury and then he came back from the injury and the stuff really took a step forward and he knows how to pitch so um i like him quite a bit i i do agree with bob that like ultimately i think you're a better team if whitlock and hauk are in the bullpen but to me it's just like out of all these guys hauk is just still so intriguing with that fastball slider combo and the huge body so yeah, and, and I'm not anti-Cutter Crawford. Um, I, I'm just at a point now where it's like starting pitcher six and starting pitcher seven are going to get enough innings. They're going to be involved. And there's, the day that Chris Sale holds up for more than 100 innings, you know, I'll believe that when I see it. So I just think that even if Crawford was in a battle for the fifth starter and loses out, he'd be back in the rotation by late April anyways. Um, he definitely made some strides this past year. Um, you know, he hit a wall late in the season. So I think his ERA ended up over four, but that was a little bit misleading. He had a stretch where he was pitching deep into games. Um, and I think that he'll be an important arm one way or another. I just don't know if he'll throw any more than the 129 innings that he threw this past season. So one guy that it seemed like you guys were kind of in agreement on, at least from like a workload standpoint is, is Bayo. Um, where are you guys at in terms of uh, performance for, for Bayo? Uh, if he is healthy, if he does kind of lead the team in innings or come close to leading the team in innings, are we seeing him take another level here, or is he just kind of picking up where he left off last year? I can start on that one. He So with Bayo, and I agree with Jake that I think that his innings count can continue to climb because they've been aggressive with him. You know, all the – Levels combined, he threw 153 innings uh, in 22, and he threw 163 innings if you count his minor league start in 2023. So he should be up over 170 at least this upcoming season. Um, and 
you know, a year ago he was working with Pedro Martinez in the offseason, which I think, you know, can only help. He's 24 years old. I think he's had a lot more experience than just about any 24-year-old entering the season, um, you know, in terms of major league innings already. And they've let him throw six, seven innings quite a bit. So the durability is there in terms of taking a step up. You know, his final ERA was 424. He had a couple awful starts late in the year. I think he hit a wall a little bit, but he took the ball every fifth or sixth day the whole season. You know, once he was back from kind of, you know, a couple scares early on in, in March, he took the ball every start. So, um, you know, I think that developing that third pitch, the slider, something that he can use for right-handers going away from them is important. Um, you know, he hasn't been as consistent, but I think he was better with that this year keep working on that. And, um, you know, I think he added a cutter that he flashed here and there as well. So I just think there's time for him to kind of figure things out in the off season, especially the age that he's at. Yeah, I, I would agree with most of what Bob said there. Um, I'm a little bit more excited for him to get his head together with Craig Breslow, even than I am with him working with Pedro, because I think that if you can get a guy like Bayo into the lab and figure out one more out pitch for him um, or just refine an offering that he already has to make it more effective, I think that could be huge because, you know, we've seen his his stuff. It's really good stuff. Even though he's a slighter guy, he holds velocity really well. Um, you know, the sinker's really good. Change-up's really solid. But um, he, he's kind of missing that standout breaking pitch. So I want to see something that misses a little bit more bats, gives him more weapons uh, later on in, in the game and, you know, a little bit more in his bag as he goes. Okay, we can move on to some of the more fringe rotation guys unless either you had anything to add on those five. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, Bob, I I didn't know we were going to discuss this guy as, as it pertains to potential starting pitchers, but Garrett Whitlock, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I still think that this is going to happen. Um, it's just a matter of staying healthy. And he had a couple of games this year where he – came out and threw seven innings and it was like 75, 80 pitches. And when he's rolling, you can just tell when he's on. Um, but this is probably the last year if they try to give him a shot in the rotation, you know, with just how many times he's gotten hurt. I don't know that he's any less at risk in the bullpen than he is in the rotation. You know, for him, I don't think he's the type that you would be able to throw back to back days. Um so I'd like to see them give him one more shot. His his numbers don't look great from last year, but again, there was a couple of times when you could tell he was healthy and he just gets in such a rhythm and he's pitching to contact and staying in the bottom of the zone and his changeup, when it's good, it's really good. And we saw in 2021 when, you know, he had a 196 ERA, which was out of the bullpen. And then in 2022, 345 ERA, he was better in the bullpen than he was in the rotation. Um, but I just, I still, this is more of an eye test thing. You know, the stats are going to tell you that he's better out of the bullpen, but just seeing where he's at when he's going five, six innings and he's locked in, um, he's just got three pitches that I think go in different directions. It has velocity. He can get a strikeout when he needs it. And I still see that and kind of hold on to that hope and the fact that they, 
bought out his arbitration years, gave him an extra year in free agency at the end. I feel like when they made that decision before last season, that they looked at him as a starting pitcher long term. So, you know, if it doesn't work out this year, then I'll finally give up this argument. But I'm still holding out hope a little bit that he can be in the mix. Jake, any any hope for Brandon Walter? Um, probably not. Uh, to, to be honest, probably not. Um, this is a name I was just like on the borderline of should I even include this guy? But um, he's a 27 year old lefty who really hasn't established himself in the major leagues yet at this point. But um, he has dealt with injuries the last couple of seasons, and I think that that has impacted him. He's a guy who really thrives off of just elite command, and I think command guys from the left side are going to get a lot of opportunities. He has four pitches, fastball, slider, cutter, changeup, and when he's healthy and he's locating, um, I have seen him dominate in the minor leagues. Um, you know, One start at AA really just stands out to me, um, in particular where he was just mixing all of his pitches and you know, you can you can look up the numbers. They have been very dominant at times. Uh, I think he's the ceiling of like a fifth starter type guy, but I'm just kind of holding out hope that if he can get his body physically right, um, that he still has that profile of a back end guy. Certainly not exciting. Certainly not somebody you want to rely on. Um, and I don't think relevant for fantasy. Um but I, I'd like to see the guy succeed after, you know, dominating so much in the minor leagues. Any uh, any reason people can't be um, drafting Kenley Jansen with confidence as the guy that's going to get, you know, 25, 30, 35 saves in that bullpen? Um, I hope that nobody says anything negative about that idea because I, I do have Kenley on a, a couple draft and hold teams already. Um, but I, I always end up with Kenley Jansen, um, just because I feel like, you know, whether it's in Boston or even if he got traded that he and Craig Kimbrell are always going to be in the closers role where they're not the type to be a setup man. They don't pitch well in non-safe situations. You know, you're not going to get elite ratios, but he's he had 29 saves and he didn't pitch in September and he was on a team under 500. You know he's going to get every save chance. Uh, he's going to have a week or two that's going to piss you off every year where he just kind of gets in a rut and isn't throwing strikes and has you know two or three blowups and then he'll figure it out. And it's just you know I think he's just got a cut fastball that can age. You know not to compare him to Mariano Rivera, but that's the kind of approach that he's taking. It's a pitch that. I think is helping him to be able to pitch until he's 40 and get 500 saves type of thing. Um, you know, and the, the, the K's are still excellent. I mean, he's been over 10 per nine every season of his career. And if, if he's falling in drafts two or three rounds more than he was a year ago, I don't see a whole lot different. He's in the same role. He's got a year left. I, I think they're just going to run it back. Yeah. yeah I mean, that like the the Kim or the uh, Kimbrel point and the the Kenley just career run, I it got me thinking to um, when I did the Rotowire uh, Dynasty Invitational. It was probably almost a decade ago at this point, and Ian Khan talked me into taking uh, Kenley in like the fourth round of that that twenty team startup dynasty league, and 
under the premise that he was basically going to be this generation's Mariano Rivera, just from a quantity of save wow. standpoint. And you fast forward, like taking any closer who remained a closer for that long, even that high in a dynasty draft, it, it pays off. Um, yeah. You anything to add there, Jake? No, I just, I think Kenley is super safe as well. Um, the only thing I would say is just as long as he's not playing a, a home stand against the Cardinals, because last year uh, he melted down twice epically against the Cardinals. So and I don't know what that was, but, uh, you know, that was ugly to watch. I'm sure you remember that well, Bob. Yeah, there was pitch clock issues. And that was the thing was going into last year. I think he was the slowest right. reliever and it, it didn't affect him at all except for two days when they started messing with him and, and yeah, keeping the time in the, the pitch box. Clock. And yeah, it was, yeah. it was a strange couple of days, but he figured it out. And other than that, I mean, you know, got that damn clock counting down in the corner that I try not to look at the whole game, but uh, <laughs> you know, he, he seemed to adjust just fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. I let the pitch clock thing scare me away from taking him last year and I, yeah. I shouldn't have, like I ignored of most of the new rules stuff with regards to just prepping, and I would have been better off just completely ignoring that one too. Um, yeah. Okay, you guys want to do quick hits, quick on on your favorite kind of reliever of the future for this team? I'll start with you, Bob. Yeah, I mean, I guess he just has one more year, but I I wanted to reference Chris Martin, and I don't know that his dominance. I just think it goes under the radar a little bit. I mean, if you go back to when he got traded. Uh, to the Dodgers at the trade deadline in 2022. He has the best ERA of any pitcher in baseball with a, mi- a minimum of 70 innings. He's got a 1.18 ERA, and it's really not close. Gratterall is the next one at 141, and he has a 0.87 whip in that time and a 28% K rate. He's not going to get saves. You know, you talk about how Jansen's going to get all the opportunities. Martin has 12 saves in his career. But if you're talking about a, a DC type of draft or a deep league where, you know, you want just that ratio stabilizer that you at least have around Martin's been as safe as it comes for a year and a half now, um, you know, 1.18 ERA. And I, I don't think there's been any blowups in that time. So I just, I think, you know, you don't want to roster many middle relievers, but he's one that just has been really low risk, even as he gets into his mid thirties. Yeah, that's a good call. What, what about you, Jake? I'm going to plug the new guy who just came over in a trade from uh, the the Mariners, Isaiah Campbell, fastball slider cutter combo. Um, Very good stuff. Held opponents to a 208 batting average last year. And I'm judging this on the reaction of hardcore Mariners fans on Twitter when we got him for Luis Urias. Um, People were pissed. So I think that uh, the the Red Sox might have found something here, a guy who could be a, a back end bullpen option um and uh pretty cool that he is the first major leaguer from portugal since like the 1800s so i'm uh very excited about this guy yeah that's a that's a good good name to bring up uh mariners probably had too many uh exciting young relievers at this point um but uh yeah love love tracking promising relief pitching prospects um Okay, let's let's uh, talk prospects here for about uh, ten minutes, and then we can get to the outfielder question. Uh, so we talked we talked a little bit about Roman Anthony earlier. Um, you know, I I moved him ahead of Marcelo Meyer. Uh, 
quite a while ago, but are is it kind of unanimous at this point among Red Sox fans that Anthony is the top guy in the system? I think it became unanimous today, actually, um, because SoxProspects.com was one of the only places that was uh, holding out, and they just released their new rankings. And uh, he is the, the number one ranked prospect on their board as well. So I think everybody feels that way. We had on Chris Clegg, and we've talked to a bunch of other people um, about this quite a bit. We've been feeling this way for a while, but uh, Roman Anthony, just with what he brings as a really good fielding outfielder, extremely good exit velocities and OBPs. Um, he's the guy to dream on. Whereas with, with uh, Meyer, we just haven't seen it all click together yet. And he also had the injury issues last year. So to me, it's, it's not particularly close um, between those two players. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because with Meyer, it's kind of slowly and, and some of it is injury related. You know, he had a wrist injury the prior year and then this year he fell running the bases and had a shoulder injury. And before that injury he hit 337 and after that he hit 190 and he was playing through the injury for the majority of the season. But at the same time, he's gotten hurt both years um, and hasn't gotten those reps. And that's just kind of, you know, if it's 1A, 1B, and 1C with Anthony Meyer and Teal, I think they're a great top three in the organization, but you get a nitpick a little bit. And with Anthony, he's – every challenge uh, he's met, you know, he's walking at every level. You know, low A, he just wasn't challenged. They had to get him out of there. The pitching wasn't good enough. And then he mashed at high A. You know, it's uh, – Jake mentioned that we had Chris Clegg on. He just said that he struggled with curveballs a little bit, but he showed just crazy power. Um, and and he also said that the glove is there, that he has mediocre defensive grades, but that he feels that he shouldn't have a problem staying in center field. You know, or even if Rafael is a long-term center fielder and Anthony is a right fielder, right field isn't easy to play at Fenway. So – he wasn't worried about the glove. It's just kind of his arm is a little bit weaker. But other than that, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to to find anything to criticize over the last year. Um, and then, you know, Teal is in the mix as well, just with proximity and talent. Um, so, and the, just the last thing to mention on Meyer is just how the comps have kind of changed over the last year or so. I mean, he was the next Corey Seager, and now we've had, multiple people tell us that he's the next Brandon Crawford and that's <laughs> that's a huge difference I mean Brandon Crawford had a very good career and is an excellent defensive shortstop which Meyer is and hit for average and double digit home runs but that's not the guy that we thought was a steal as the number four pick two years ago yeah that wasn't even the worst comp we got either what was it what was it that Jeff Ponce gave us in the third baseman Jaimar Candelario. Yeah, Candelario. Was, that it. was most jarring of anything that was yeah. said on the show all year. That rocked some people's worlds. So if you, <laughs> you, know, if you really want to get excited, it could be uh, like Candelario's bat from circa 2023 with Brandon Crawford's defense circa 2013 yeah. or whatever. That's <laughs> not a bad player. Um, okay, well, uh, yeah, and it, with Roman Anthony, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've mentioned this before, but the the tape 
when I when I would watch him at at high A, he just reminded me so much of uh, prime Christian Yelich as a as a lefty hitter with that all fields just mega power approach to all fields. Um, really exciting. Uh, you know the pitching, like it it kind of became apparent to me that the Red Sox had something kind of special cooking with these young uh, pitchers from Latin America pretty early last season. You know, they were just, it seemed like several of them are breaking out at the same time. Um, Jake, is there one of these guys, Wickelman Gonzalez, or, or maybe a couple, uh, Wickelman Gonzalez or Donnie Manegro, Luis Perales, uh, Angel Bastardo uh, are kind of the top four to me. Uh, any of those guys have you really excited or, or that you really want to say something about? Well, I think I need to clear the floor for Bob to talk about Monegro, but I'll I'll hit on uh, Wickelman and uh, Perales a little bit. So those two guys, Wickelman Gonzalez and Luis Perales, are really interesting. Um, particularly, Winkleman had a really good close to the year, holds velocity well deep into games, um, great curveball, pretty decent changeup as well. Um, you know, the thing that both of these guys share is that they both can have command issues at times, but both have the stuff to be impact starters um, if they can hone in those command issues. And Perales is, is another guy who's really interesting, really good fastball, great shape, great slider. Um, he's still struggling a little bit to develop a consistent third offering, whether that's going to be a change up, a cutter or something else that they have to work with there. But you know, both of those guys are the Craig Breslow type of pitcher. Um, you know, he's he's talked about some of the the tenets of, of pitching that he looks for when he's looking to develop guys, and it starts with like a good fastball, and then kind of goes from there. Um, so these guys are these are not your your typical low nineties guys with good command who are going to be fringy back end guys like. Worst case scenario for Wickelman and, and Perales, I think, is that they end up as late inning relievers. And uh, best case scenario with these guys is mid rotation starters or potentially even better if they figure it out. So really like both of those guys. But I think your Donnie is the the real uh, breakout of the system. And Bob has been enamored with him for a while. So, uh, Bob, give us the spiel. Yeah, um, I mean, with with Monegro, it just I, I hadn't heard of him before the season, and then he went to the complex league, which whatever it's the complex league, but he threw five innings, three straight starts, and had six to eight strikeouts, and he didn't give up he gave up two runs in those three starts total. So they moved him to low A, and he just did this exact same thing with multiple 10, 11 strikeout performances there. So they moved him up to high A. And then Greenville ended up making the playoffs at high A and he was starting game one of the finals and came out and pitched great. So it's just, you know, he went from the complex league in June to pitching in the high A playoffs and between, you know, he's got a good fastball that, you know, in, in watching some of the film, I think his command needs work in the next couple of years, but his curveball is awesome. It's just got an old school 12 to six, like long, hook that he has, um, you know, and then he, he has a change up as well. And it's just, they gave him a pretty decent leash for somebody uh, who was starting in the complex league, letting him throw all the way through the end. He had 93 strikeouts and in 65 innings, 26 walks, which isn't terrible, especially with how many K's he had. 
you know, I think the command needs some work, but it just seems like there's upside there. And I was just impressed by just the leap that he made really outside of any prospect list before the season. Yeah. I, I didn't know who he was um, either before the season. And yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it, on my end of season rankings, I had it Gonzalez, Monegro, Perales in that order. Do you guys both have Monegro ahead of Gonzalez? I had Perales first. Oh, okay. Um, in just talking to scouts who have watched him pitch, I just think that the upside, even though the, the stat line is not quite there, it just sounds like his kind of the vertical break that he has and just the upside of multiple pitches that could be plus pitches at the major league level and how hard he throws. You know, I think he can get up there 98, 99. Um, it seems like he has the mo- the the highest chance at, at a uh, top of the rotation pitcher, I just would say, if that was someone that I was um, trying to target for that possibility. But I don't know, maybe Manegra has a better chance of kind of making the league and being mid to low end starter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, I gave Bob such a hard time about his love for Monegro, but I've actually turned into quite a Monegro fan. <laughs> I think he might have the highest ceiling out of all three of those guys because uh, he has a feel for pitching at a pretty young age, which is not something that you usually see. And he also has a really big projectable frame where you could see him adding below without really impacting his mechanics or sort of overthrowing or anything like that. So... I think he's the most interesting of those three guys. Well, it's it's a good problem to have if you or it's it's a good uh, it's not a problem, but like having three guys where there's a debate about who has the ceiling or who should be the top ranked uh, pitching prospect. Uh, not a bad place to be. Um, do you think they've figured out anything, Jake, in terms of just international pitching, or is this just kind of it comes in waves and this happens to be a, a positive way? No, I definitely do think they figured something out. So what the Red Sox have been doing is really interesting when it comes to pitching. They haven't taken a starting pitcher in the first or second round of the you know regular draft um, since 2017 when they took Tanner Houck in the first round. Um, so they have really gone away from that. And when they do take pitchers in the regular draft, they are usually taking, you know, college juniors and seniors, not huge money guys. Um, and they're just stockpiling um, as many international arms as they can. And usually these arms aren't their big bonus guys. Their big bonuses are still going to, um, you know, traditional uh, position player type guys. Like, for instance, uh, Mar Negro, um, he was a $35,000 bonus Um you know, going down from there, Winkleman Gonzalez was a $250,000 bonus. Angel Bastardo was 35 k um, They are just kind of stockpiling a lot of guys with traits that they like. Felix Cepeda is another one that signed for 40 k um, You know, th- they're kind of just doing a numbers game here, and they're really attacking the international market quite a bit for their arms. They realize, I think, the volatility that comes with pitching development and they're like, okay, we can sign a whole bunch of uh, international guys for low bonuses um, who are 16, or we can gamble with a bunch of 18 year olds who are going to cost way more. Um, And they've just decided this is the more efficient route. So 
I like it, and I think that their pitching development is on the best track that it's been on in, you know, 20 years at this point. Any uh, any guys you guys want to hit on in the farm system before we move on to the uh, fun new end of show gimmick? I, I got one that I need to talk about. Uh, Yoel Encespedes. Um, he's a name that everybody needs to know. He's 18 years old, a recent J2 guy. Um, he's smaller, five foot nine, um, but he's got a thick build. He also is rocking some pretty great facial hair, or at least he was towards the end of the year um, when he came up to Fenway to receive an award for his performance in the minor leagues. But in the DSL this year, as a 17-year-old, he had a, a 346, 392, 560 uh, slash line with a 145 WRC plus and is just drawing rave reviews as a right-handed hitter, which is something that they definitely need. He's playing shortstop right now. Um, not sure if that's going to be his his home long-term. It seems like he might have more of the build for second base, but I mean, seems like an impact hitter here. So uh, UL and is somebody that I'm grabbing absolutely everywhere. I think this might be the next really special international guy for uh, the Red Sox. Anyone? You I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to, I don't want people to forget about Miguel Blaise, who I feel like might be a buying opportunity this year. I mean, his hype was, and I'm talking in dynasty leagues, of course, but you know, his hype was through the roof a year ago and he had a shoulder injury, which I understand why that's concerning with the front shoulder, but you know, with a year of rehab, you gotta remember this guy is 19 years old and had really good exit velocity and speed and um, just raw power that, that he has the potential for, you know, and it, it could be a high ceiling, low floor type of thing. He could fizzle out, but you know, the, the, the season before he had 301 in the complex league um, with some power and speed and just, I just, think that he's kind of become an afterthought with some of the names that have passed him, especially Roman Anthony and Roman Anthony should, but a year ago, Blaze was ranked ahead of Anthony on most lists. So I just don't think a, a year that's lost with injury at that age, you know, that he should become an afterthought because all the reports were pretty glowing of, of him with the kind of peripheral stats. Yeah. Two good dynasty position players to keep an eye on there. Yoel and Cespedes and Miguel Blaze. Um, okay, uh, we're almost done, but you guys got to play my uh, post 380p series game here. Um, we debuted it last week with Sarah Sanchez at catcher, and now we're going to do outfielders. So we are each going to pick one outfielder with an ADP after 300 in NFBC 15 team draft and hold leagues uh, that we think is a really good value. Uh, going outside the top 300 and uh you guys are allowed to say a red sox player um so that's that's open to you uh why don't we start with uh jake uh who's an outfielder who's going outside the top 300 in the nfbc that you think is a really good value so i'm gonna go with a boston pick but not a boston red sox player i'm gonna go with sal frelick who played his baseball at boston college um uh, Left-handed bat, 23 years old, uh, going to have an opportunity to hit in a really good lineup spot for the Brewers next year in all likelihood. Uh, high contact, great walk rate. Um, I think 
what you could see out of him is potentially like a uh, a version of um, Masataki Yoshida with maybe a little bit less power, a little bit more speed, but kind of that similar um, slash line across the board. I don't quite think that he's a guy who's going to hit 300, but I think that a 350 OBP is certainly in play. Um, if he can add a little bit of strength, I think he could tap into the power a little bit more. That's the thing with him is it looks like could be an empty slash line, but I do think that the contact ability is good enough there that this is a very safe player, somebody who I think will keep his job all year. He plays solid defense. Um, I like the player. I think with in this range, I'm looking for a guy who is not going to negatively impact my team and a guy who has the potential to give a little bit more return. And, uh, you know, while he doesn't have the highest ceiling out of this group, I think he's got one of the higher, if not the highest floor uh, post that OBP, uh, post that uh, ADP. All right. I, I like it. Uh, where are you going to go, Bob? Uh, I've always been a Brandon Marsh fan. So seeing some of the strides he made last year at, at pick 358, um, I'm taking that all day. I mean, he, overall, he had a 125 WRC plus last year. He had double digit homers, double digit steals, and he hit 277. You know, it was with a high BABIP, but he's always run a high BABIP because he hits the ball hard. You know, his stat cast page, he went from 21st percentile to 88th percentile in the walk rate this year, all the way up to 12.5%. So I think he improved with his plate discipline. He improved against left-handers, you know, not sky high, but he's up to 229 against lefties, which is, you know, acceptable. I think that a lot of people still think that he's a platoon hitter, and I think that he can play most of the time. And he's in a good lineup with good counting stats and a solid defensive player. So, you know, like I said, I've always been a fan of Marsh as a prospect, and he'll be entering his age 26 season. And I just think he's got another gear if he keeps that walk rate. Um as high as it was this past year, you know, I think he can get closer to a, a 2015, possibly 2020 kind of guy with a little more playing time against lefties. Yeah. There's some, uh, there's some good options in this range. Um, yeah. I really struggled to, to narrow it down to one guy. Um, I, I do really like Parker Meadows and Matt Wallner where they're going. Um, but I, I gotta go with, uh, and I'm going to go with the Yankees since we talked Red Sox for an hour and a half, but, um, I have Jason Dominguez is the only hitter that I have on all four of my draft champions teams. Uh, he's basically going around pick 400. Um, just looked like a superstar to me over his final 50 games last year in the minors, obviously had an awesome tiny run in the, in the big leagues. Um, but I just, I think people are, are not pricing him correctly in the draft and hold format here. Um, you know, he's got the upside to be like a top 30, top 50 player over the final three months of the season when he comes back from Tommy John surgery. And I would I would kind of conservatively value him as a borderline top 100 player once he's back in the Yankees lineup. We saw how they used him last year. They're going to hit him high in the order. Center field is, is just his job there. Um, so I'm not really worried about the playing time. And I'm honestly not even really worried about the, the performance uh, to the point where he would maybe lose playing time. And I just think the ceiling is so high. Like if if he's going at yeah. pick 400 and you know you're going to be able to plug him in and feel really good about it for half the season, that's a, too good of a value there. 
Yeah. Oh, that, that's that's good. I mean, you wonder where he would go if he was fully healthy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he would. I think he would have basically been on sort of a similar kind of path. That I mean, well, who know who knows how he would have finished the season? I guess. If yeah. Yeah, I, outfield, very, very deep position, I think, this year. It does eventually kind of fall off, but um, I don't mind kind of starting with one outfielder, maybe two outfielders, and then going for, for three or four. Yeah. Um, but we got to wrap it up. I, I know I got to get you guys out of here. Um, Bob, why don't you start off by just telling people where they can follow you and, and uh, yeah. anything you got going on? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at BobOsgood15. Um, writing it over the monster about the Red Sox and I, you know, still helping out at the dynasty guru a little bit as well. Um, our podcast, you can search under monsters of socks. Uh, it's called the red sea podcast within uh, that monsters of socks on, you know, Apple, Spotify, all of that. So I really appreciate you having me on James. This was great. Yeah, it was, it was great meeting you, Bob, and I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. Jake, what about you? Where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or X at, uh, at Dev Jake, and you can follow my writing at overthemonster.com. And uh, I'm also on the same podcast as Bob, so I'll, I'll plug that again. It's Monsters of Socks, and our show is called The Red Sea. Awesome, guys. Um, this has been a blast. I, we could have easily gone for another hour or so, but um, had to keep it keep it to a normal uh, length here. Um, but uh, really appreciate you hopping on and I hope you have a good rest of your weeks and uh, a good holiday uh, weekend. I am going to take a, a couple of weeks off from doing the podcast, but Todd Zillow is going to have you covered uh, for a couple episodes here coming up. Thanks so much, James. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.